Good morning, everyone. As Chris said, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood, and if I haven't had the chance to connect with you this morning, I would love to do so sometime after our gathering here. Uh, Before we get into the message this morning, there's a couple things I want to share with you. Uh, The first thing is that our next round of labs is coming up this spring. And you'll see that uh, if you have one of those uh, schedule cards in front of you, you can see that we are doing a lab on the subject of uh, Bible. Uh, Here at Elmwood, we have five spiritual rhythms that we uh, sense are just essential for us to cultivating a life of being together with Jesus and living as his disciples. And those spiritual rhythms or practices are Bible, prayer, Sabbath, community, and mission. And so uh, we did a lab on the subject of Sabbath this past fall, and now we're going to do one on the subject of Bible come this spring. Uh, The schedule is going to look a little bit different. So we're going to have three a little bit longer sessions together. And so we're going to do a Saturday morning from 9 to 11.30 a.m., so three sessions, the first three, uh, the first uh, Saturday of February, March, and April. Uh, there's really no good way to do this, right? Uh, weekend mornings are at a premium, so are weeknights. And so uh, we just got to find a way to do this. Uh, so we're just inviting you, uh, if you can make this work, to be a part of this together. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to be uh, using this book as a guide. This is a book called Come and See. It's by an author named Jonathan Pennington. This is just a really helpful book. Uh, It talks about three different ways of approaching reading the Bible. One of those being informational, one of those being theological, and one of those being transformational or more devotional. And so it gives just a helpful framework for how is it that we approach the Bible? How do we read the Bible uh, and and really uh, get everything we can from the Bible using these three different ways of approaching it? And so this is going to be our guide. So if you are interested in participating in this, uh, please, would you email me, john at elmwoodchurch.org, or would you go out to the connections table and put your name on the sign-up sheet? The books are on their way. They are in the mail. You can probably pick those up next Sunday. Uh, we will ask you to read the first uh, short section of the book before we meet on the first Sunday of February, so you'll have some time to, to read that. Uh, but I just want to invite you to join us as we uh, continue to cultivate uh, a life of healthy engagement with the Bible and meeting with Jesus there. Um, so join us for labs coming this spring. Uh, the second thing I want to uh, mention with you is uh, I want to give some final numbers. Uh, Dave said I would share more financial information. And this morning I get to share about Be Rich. Uh, back on Sunday, October 29th, we looked at Psalm 67, which I'm sure all of you remember like it was yesterday. <laughs> we looked at Psalm 67, and Psalm 67 is a psalm that teaches us how to pray for both the spiritual and material blessing of God in our lives. Uh, Psalm 67 shows us that it is good to ask for the spiritual blessing of God in our lives, and it is good and it is right to pray and to ask God for the material blessing of God in our lives. Now, for some of us, that may feel a little bit weird, a little bit uncomfortable to like be asking for God's material blessing. Uh, but one of the things that Psalm 67 also shows us is that if our hearts are in tune with God's, we should never be ashamed to ask for more. The psalm writer says, God, would you pour out your spiritual blessing on us so that the nations would know that you are God? Would you pour out your material blessing on us so that the nations would know that you are God? And so the point is that when our hearts are in tune with God's, 
we should never be ashamed to ask for more. We've been asking God for more. Uh, Our leadership team has been praying through Psalm 67 over the course of this last year, praying the psalm for our church family, and especially as we deal with some of the sticker shock of the uh, unexpected repairs that we had to do around the building this last year, and as we look at you know what seems like an insurmountable expense to uh, overcome without taking out a loan and all this stuff, uh, we've been asking God to provide for our financial needs. And to just be very transparent with you, when we suggested that we were going to uh, set out to raise $30,000, I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, a church our size raising $30,000 uh, was, you know, asking for 30% more than we normally bring in each year. And so it was like, okay, this is going to be like miracle territory if we're able to, uh, to generate that much income at the end of this year. Uh, our church family this last year raised $34,190 as a part of Be Rich. And that's not the only miracle. Let me tell you a story. It's Sunday, November 26th, and I'm running around on Sunday morning doing all my normal things, uh, stuff with sound and live stream and all this, you know, running around stuff. And I see that there's an individual who is standing out in the entryway uh, earlier than people normally show up <laughs> to Elmwood. You know, it was before 10 o'clock, and I'm like, that's weird. Uh, so I was able to get to a stopping point and went out there and connected with this individual. And come to find out, this person's family was a part of Elmwood back when it was on 26th and McKinley in northeast Minneapolis. So this person's family goes way back with Elmwood. This person came to know Jesus... In 1971, in what is now a storage room in the South Wing. Before this building was, before this part of the building even existed, this person came to know Jesus in what was one of the pastor's offices uh, back in the 70s. And this person hasn't been back to Elmwood since the mid 70s. This person goes on to tell me I drove to my home church this morning. And I'm sitting in the parking lot, and I'm getting ready to get out of my car, and I hear the Spirit of God say to me, go to Elmwood today. And they're like, that's weird. I haven't been to Elmwood in 45 years. Why go to Elmwood today? Okay. So I drive to Elmwood, and we're sitting there out in the entryway talking about this, and, and both of us are like, well... I have no idea why you're here, but uh, God has some reason for you, so I guess we will find out in time why it is that you are here. This is the Sunday that I shared about Be Rich. And as I was just being transparent and announcing, hey, here's this need we have. Uh, the need exceeds the $30,000, but like we're going to try and raise thirty grand. And as I was announcing that need, and as I was uh, trying to do the best I could to cast vision for our church to rally together around that need, when I said, we're going to try and raise $30,000, this person tells me, and I heard the Spirit of God speak again, this time saying, the whole thing. We later received a check in the mail for $30,000. So the total amount that we raised for Be Rich this year is $64,051. There is no way to explain this other than that this is the miraculous provision of God for our needs. Person sitting in the parking lot and God tells them, go to a church you haven't been to for 45 years 
And it just so happens that it's the Sunday when I'm standing up here. I got to be the you know bearer of bad news with <laughs> what we're going to raise money for for Be Rich this year. And God says, give the whole thing. There is no doubt that this is like the miraculous provision of God. And just, uh, you, you may have noticed how evasive I'm being <laughs> as it relates to this person's name and identity. Uh, this person wanted uh, this to be totally anonymous. And they said, I'm not the hero of this story. God is. And I don't want any of the credit for any of this. Uh, I don't know what else to do at a moment like this, except like worship. <laughs> So uh, what I want to ask us to do is something that uh, I'm going to ask you to do two things that we don't normally ask you to do. Uh, number one is we are going to somewhat spontaneously sing in the middle of the sermon. So I'm going to ask you to stand. Uh, I would love for our church family to just sing the doxology together. Uh, it's a song that many of you probably have memorized, uh, but the words are going to be up on the screen as well. And so I just want to invite you to uh, join me as we worship God for his miraculous provision. And another thing I'm going to ask you to do uh, that may make you feel a little bit uncomfortable is I want us to lift our hands in worship to God as we sing this together. Sometimes it's really good for us to take our bodies and let our bodies help us posture our hearts towards God in worship. And if you feel awkward with that, there's other people that feel awkward too. Um, so we can just all be awkward in it together. And it's good for us to do things that push us outside of our comfort zone as a response to this kind of miraculous provision of God. So what I want to do is just ask you to uh, join with me in raising your hands as we uh, worship God for his miraculous provision. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. This morning, God, we praise you and we worship you for being our abundant provider. God, thank you for providing for our church family in ways that we could have never dreamed of and in ways that make it so obvious that you are the source of the provision. God, we pray that you would pour out your spiritual blessing on Elmwood so that the nations would come to know who you are. God, we continue to pray that you would pour out your material blessing on Elmwood so that the nations would come to know that you are God. We're so grateful, Lord, for your provision. And so would you accept the gift of our worship? We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated.
When things are different yet very closely related, we sometimes say that they are like two sides of the same coin. Uh, this is true. You may have experienced something like this in maybe the vocational realm of your life and your work where uh, your team is just absolutely crushing it. Maybe your, your department uh, is just hitting all of your you know, sales targets or your production targets or all of this. And at the same time, team morale is like super high which is, you know, to be expected in times like that. And so you might look at the, uh, the production and the success of your team and the sort of uh, team morale, and you would say, you know, these two things are like two sides of the same coin. They're very closely related. Uh, you may think about your marriage, and you may say, you know, uh, my spouse and I feel very, uh, our relationship feels great right now. We feel connected. We feel like we have healthy rhythms in the life of our family and our marriage. And uh, we also notice that, like, we're learning in our communication patterns. And so we feel like we're communicating really well. And so you might look at it and say, yeah, the, like the uh, overall health and vitality of our marriage and the patterns of communication that we have, those two things are like two sides of the same coin. Uh, they're very closely linked, closely related together. Uh, you may think about your health and you may, you know, uh, identify that you uh, experience, uh, maybe you're in a season of like depression or a season of discouragement or a season uh, of, of sort of frustration. And you're also walking through a season, a long season of like chronic ongoing illness. And so you would look at like my mental, my emotional state, and then my physical state. And you would say, you know, these two things are kind of like two sides of the same coin. They're very closely linked together. And we could identify lots of different areas of life where this is true because there's lots of things in life that have this two sides of the same coin type relationship. And it's because most things in our life can't be neatly compartmentalized or separated from one another. Last year, we started a journey through the book of Mark, and today we are stepping back into that world after taking the fall off. The book of Mark falls into two halves chapters 1 through the first part of chapter 8 and, and the midway point of chapter 8 through chapter 16. And these two halves of Mark are uh, in many ways very, very different from one another, and they are like two sides of the same coin. The title we gave to the first part of the series was Following the Authoritative Son of God. And the title that we're giving to the second part of the series, as you can see, is Following the Crucified Savior. And this is because there's a noticeable shift in sort of the, the, the direction of the book, where Jesus now, in the second half of the book, is uh, we now know that he's not just the Messiah. We begin to find out specifically what kind of Messiah, what kind of deliverer he actually came to be. And so Jesus is both the authoritative Son of God and the crucified Savior. And these two aspects of his identity are not like two things that are in competition with one another. These two aspects of Jesus' identity complement one another. And as we look at the book as a whole, we can see that some of, these, uh, some of these aspects of who Jesus is that are in the first half, oh, they're still there in the second half. They're just expressed in new or different ways. So what I'd like to do this morning is just uh, take two of the themes that we see running through the book of Mark. And I wanted to sort of uh, look at how the book of Mark sort of is this unified whole. And my hope is that today can function as something of a bridge between the two halves of the book of Mark. And my hope is that this can help us sort of ease our way back into the book after taking this last fall off. I was uh, doing my best to avoid doing a like, let me just sort of uh, 
summarize everything we saw over the last year type message. So I want to just uh, look at a couple of these themes in just these few moments we have uh, left. So uh, let's start by just observing the theme of Jesus's divine identity. This is a theme that we see in the first part of Mark, as well as the second part, and it's expressed in uh, different ways. So from the very opening verses of the book, uh, very first verse, actually, we as the readers, we get a clear picture of who Jesus is. We're told that this is the good news about Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Son of God. So we as the readers immediately know what this story is about and who this man Jesus is. But remember that none of the people who met Jesus that we read about in the book of Mark had the information that we come to the text knowing. None of them knew that. So for 16 chapters, we see Jesus's identity through a variety of different ways as being revealed to the people that he encounters. And so sometimes, as Mark tells the story again, uh, we, we see Jesus' identity being revealed through things like illusions or through echoes, uh, things that sort of function like hyperlinks, like the little blue link that you click that takes you to a different web page. Uh, you, you start to see uh, there's words or there's ideas or there's a, a, a word picture that, that all of a sudden you, you start connecting different parts of the Bible and realize, oh, Jesus is doing things that the Hebrew Bible says only God can do. And so we begin to sort of get this picture of who Jesus is. And we see it through things like illusions and echoes and foreshadowings. We see it through things like inference and context clues. And so Mark does just a a masterful, beautiful job of of revealing for us Jesus' divine identity throughout the book. And one of the aspects of his divine identity that's front and center in chapters 1 through 8 is Jesus' divine authority. That's why we titled the first part of the book, Following the Authoritative Son of God, because his authority is uh, front-loaded in the book. So the first part of the book really emphasizes this uh, in a variety of different ways. So if it, just think back with me on what we've seen. Uh, Mark has been telling us that Jesus has authority over the physical realm. We see this all the time through Jesus doing miracles and Jesus is doing healings. So he's healing everything from fevers to death to just about everything in between, from uh, hemorrhages to people who are blind or people who can't see or um, other various things. Leprosy, for example. Jesus is healing all of these different things, and we get this picture that Jesus has authority over the physical realm. He can simply speak and undo the effects of sin in the world. He can simply speak and the brokenness of our world that has come as a result of sin is undone instantly when Jesus speaks. And so we see that he has this authority over the physical realm. But not only this, we see Jesus has authority over the natural realm. You see Jesus, he's with his disciples in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and this huge storm comes. And the disciples are, I think rightly so, freaking out because the waves are crashing over the side of the boat and they're wondering if the ship's going to go down. And Jesus stands up and says, peace be still, and the waters are quiet. So Jesus calms the storm. We see Jesus taking uh, a few loaves of bread and a few fishes, no more than would fit like in a little picnic basket, and he feeds thousands of people. He miraculously multiplies this food. We see Jesus walking on water, which is another one of those things that it's like in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, only God himself is said to be able to tread on top of the waves. So we see Jesus has authority over the physical realm, over the natural realm, and also over the spiritual realm. Jesus is driving back the spiritual forces of darkness. 
Jesus is driving out demons who are terrorizing and demonizing people. Sometimes it's an individual demon. Sometimes, like in in chapter 5, it's a horde of demons, right? It's this legion or thousands of demons that are tormenting this one person. And Jesus, again, simply speaks. And these demonic spiritual forces must obey his voice. Jesus also has the authority to forgive sin. So in all these ways, we see Jesus has authority over the physical realm. He has authority over the natural realm. He has authority over the spiritual realm. And in all of these cases of Jesus's authority, he doesn't have to like muster up enough strength to like accomplish the task. He simply speaks and it happens because Jesus is being presented to us as the authoritative son of God. And this is a picture of his divine authority. This is what the first half of book, the book of Mark emphasizes, is his authority. And the second half puts a little bit finer point on the way that Jesus used that authority. Jesus used his authority to accomplish our ultimate good. So in other words, the authoritative Jesus that we see in the first half of the book doesn't turn into a uh, helpless sufferer in the second half of the book. The second half of the book is all about Jesus' suffering and his execution and his resurrection from the dead. But it's not presenting to us a different Jesus than in the first half. Jesus still retains his divine authority. And the second half of the book shows us how it is that Jesus used his authority for our good. And so we see these uh, like two sides of the same coin. That Jesus is the authoritative son of God and Jesus is our crucified savior. And it's two sides of the same coin. So that's one of the themes that we can uh, trace as we look throughout the book of Mark. Uh, Just one more brief theme that I want to kick around with you is the path of apprenticeship to Jesus. This is another one of these themes that we see running throughout the entire book of Mark. And uh, there's uh, somewhat of a shift in the second half of the book. Throughout Mark, the disciples are in the process of discovering for the very first time who this man Jesus is. They're they're discovering who Jesus is and why he came. They're discovering what it means to follow him. And so they're in this process of discovering who Jesus is. And as the story unfolds, what we get is this picture of what apprenticeship to Jesus looks like. What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it look like to be a follower of this man, Jesus? And there's a a handful of different aspects of apprenticeship to Jesus uh, that we see. We see that uh, apprenticeship to Jesus is Being with Jesus. This is like so simple. (laughs) Being with Jesus. This is what the disciples did. They left their uh, vocations, some of them. They left their uh, families. And they spent a significant period of time with Jesus. And they were simply observing. They were simply watching. They were simply taking it all in. I think we know something of what this is like. When you go to a new place, whether it's, uh, you know, you're, you're maybe on a vacation somewhere or you uh, go into someone's house, you've never been to their house before, you go into a new uh, work environment, you go into a new school or into a new class or something like this, and all of a sudden, like, whether you realize it or not, your brain is just like, you're taking everything in. You're observing things and you're, you're, you're sort of uh, just taking in all the information. And this is what the disciples were doing is they were simply with Jesus for three years. They were just with him. And this is a huge aspect of what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus, is to be with Jesus. But another aspect of apprenticeship to Jesus is listening to Jesus' voice. 
They didn't just sit there and follow him around and just watch what he did. Jesus was constantly teaching. He was constantly announcing the good news of the kingdom of God and what it means to be uh, his apprentice and his follower. Some of the teaching of Jesus was directed at his disciples, where he taught them directly and specifically. Some of his teaching was to maybe to larger groups of people, to crowds. And so Jesus, uh, the 12, were able to just sort of observe what Jesus was teaching And they just kind of learned by proximity to being around Jesus. But in either case, they listened to Jesus's voice. And as they listened, much of their, uh, you could call it mental furniture. That's the the language that uh, Pastor Tim Keller uses. Their mental furniture is being rearranged. Some of their mental furniture is being like swapped out for different furniture. So what's happening is that Jesus is giving them new ideas. Jesus is giving them new categories Jesus is opening their minds to understand uh, what this kingdom of God is and what it's actually like and who who this man Jesus actually is. And so we see the disciples and they hear Jesus say things that may have just sounded totally crazy at the time. So they're sitting there listening to Jesus when he's saying things like, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is a Jewish rabbi saying, I didn't come for like the righteous people. I came to seek out the worst people I could find. That might have sound crazy to them. They hear him say things like, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. They hear Jesus say things like, Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And there's all these things that they're just, they're listening and they're learning all these new things for the first time. In fact, Mark gives us an entire chapter Chapter 4 is all about Jesus giving these parables about the significance and the importance of listening, about hearing the message of the kingdom of God. And, and you hear this refrain that's repeated over and over again, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. It matters how you hear. It matters how you listen. And so uh, the disciples are with Jesus and they're listening to him and Jesus is teaching them about the importance of simply listening to his voice. And this is another one of these huge aspects of their apprenticeship to Jesus is being with him and listening to him. Another aspect of their apprenticeship is doing what Jesus did. This is an aspect of any kind of apprenticeship. If you're in an apprenticeship for, you know, say to be an electrician, being an apprentice means you actually practice what you are learning from the person that you were spending time with. And the same thing with Jesus's disciples. They're not his apprentices because they're just with him. They're not his apprentices because they simply listen to his teaching. They're his apprentices when they put it into practice and when their lives are shaped and transformed by what it is that Jesus is teaching them. And so we see the disciples are sent out with the authority of Jesus to do things like cast out demons and see people healed and do ministry and announce the coming of the kingdom of God. So the disciples actually go out and practice what it is that they see Jesus Uh, teaching. And so in this way, they are doing what Jesus did. So those are all very prominent things we see in the first half of the book. And then as we come to the second part of the book, there's another aspect of apprenticeship to Jesus that comes, uh, that becomes clear. And that is following Jesus on the path of suffering. Being an apprentice or a follower or a disciple of Jesus means being with Jesus, listening to Jesus's voice, doing what Jesus did and following Jesus on the path of suffering.
is Jesus revealed to his disciples why he came, which was to give his life as a ransom for many, to give his life as a sacrifice so that we could be free. As Jesus is revealing why he came, he's shedding new light on what it means to be his apprentice. Being a follower of Jesus means following Jesus on the path of suffering. Jesus teaches this very explicitly in chapter 8, where he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So the whole second half of the book of Mark is about Jesus going to the cross to suffer and to die and to lay down his life for us. And what Jesus says here is, I'm not the only one who's going to endure the cross. All of my followers have a cross to carry as well. It may look very different than mine, but if you are to be my disciple, it means by definition, taking up your cross and following me. Then he goes on to say, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Seems backwards. Seems counterintuitive. Jesus goes on to say, in 9 verse 35, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Then at the end of chapter 10, Jesus says, and whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. So Jesus is clear that being his apprentice, being his follower means being with him, listening to his voice, doing what he did, and following him on the path of suffering. This is what it looks like to be an apprentice of Jesus. And this is what we actually see in the rest of the New Testament as well, where in the book of Philippians... Paul's writing to this church and he says, uh, friends, do you realize that it has been granted to you? It has been given to you as a gift that you should not only believe in Jesus and get all of the wonderful benefits of, of new life in him. It has been given to you as a gift, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. This is a key aspect of what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. And we see that coming into clearer focus in the second half of the book of Mark. Now, there's so many more themes that we could trace. So many more themes we can trace, but uh, my hope this morning is that as we look at the ways that the, the two sides of Mark function as like two sides of the same coin, as we look at these themes and see that, oh yeah, they're there throughout the entire book. Uh, they look a little bit different. They're expressed a little bit different, but they're all there. My hope is that as we uh, look at this, that this simply whets our appetite for more. That this, that this whets our appetite to say, man, I want to see more of this. To know the, the riches of what we see here in Mark and also in the rest of the Bible. And my prayer is that as a church community, we would continue uh, to become the kind of church that opens our Bibles with expectation and with anticipation. Knowing that every single time we do, God delights to reveal to us the written word so that we might delight in Jesus who is the living word. And so that's my hope for us this morning. Let me just invite you to uh, respond in this one way. As we go back into this season of looking at the book of Mark, let me just invite you to uh, create an intentional plan for spending time with Jesus in the book of Mark. Figure out a way to create a rhythm in your life 
And, and depending on your season of life, depending on your age, depending on all sorts of things, that's going to look very different for all of us. But my encouragement is that as we go into the book of Mark again, uh, for this second half of the journey, uh, that you would cultivate a practice of being with Jesus. And that might mean one time per week outside of our Sunday gatherings. You say, you know, I'm going to sit down for 20 minutes and just read Mark. It might mean that you have the capacity to spend time four, five, six days a week outside of here reading the book of Mark. Uh, But my encouragement to you is come up with some rhythm of reading the book of Mark over these next number of weeks. And there's a couple tools that we've provided for you. One of these is a, a Mark Bible journal that we've handed out. There's some of these out of the connections table. So if you don't have one of these, please grab one of these. Uh, these have the, the text of the Bible on one page and just a blank page on the other side for you to like write notes and make observations or write down prayers or whatever else you need that space for. Uh, but take this as a tool. And if you're saying, you know, I'm not even sure what in the world I should be doing when I read There's a card out there as well that looks like this. That's just got some information on how do you sit down to read the Bible? What are the kinds of things you should be looking for? What are the kinds of things you should be asking? And this just gives uh, some resources, uh, some tools, and some questions for you as you go on that journey. Uh, But I just want to encourage you to create a rhythm of meeting with Jesus in the book of Mark over the course of these next number of months together. We began our time this morning uh, with worship and gratitude for God's miraculous provision. And this is how we get to end our time together this morning as well. Uh, Today, especially, we are rightly blown away by the miraculous provision of God. We don't get to do this kind of thing all that often. Uh, We don't get to celebrate this type of miraculous provision all too often. But there's a kind of miraculous provision that we get to remember and celebrate every single week. And it's something that's far, far, infinitely more valuable than a few thousand dollars. We get to remember and celebrate that Jesus came and gave his life in place of ours so that we could be set free from sin and death and the evil one. And so we get to remember and celebrate what Christ has done for us this morning. As we come to the communion table, let me invite you to take just a few moments of silence for confession and reflection. And then we will come celebrate Christ together.